Well, good evening. Thank you very much for uh, coming tonight. Uh, it's sad that so many of you don't have anything better to do, but uh, <laughs> but neither do I. So you know, we might as well hang out together. Uh, that's that's just just great. Uh, tonight, uh, per uh, Tony's uh, request, I'm going to draw from a recent book of mine uh, that uh, answers at a length that some will find rather long, and that others. Uh, we'll find woefully brief, a pretty simple question. How should a Christian think? Uh, ever since I was involved in Christian university groups as a, uh, as a young person, I asked this question. If, if we agree that we're supposed to think Christianly about everything, right? not just about spiritual things, not just about church or Bible or prayer, but if we're supposed to think Christianly about our political decisions, about our economic life, about our uh, romantic and sexual and family lives, about everything. If we're supposed to think uh, like Christians about everything, great. I'm, I'm on board for that. Where's the second book that tells me how to do that? What does that look like? Am I supposed to open the Bible and hope that I come across a relevant verse? Or am I supposed to pray until the Holy Spirit tells me whom to vote for? Or whom to marry? Am I supposed to ask my pastor? Like, what does it look like to think in a responsible Christian way? And how would I know that I'd done it once I had? Uh, these, these struck me as pretty basic, obvious questions to ask. And so I went to my university leaders and said, great, I'm ready for the next book. Well, well there isn't one. How can there not be? It's just an obvious follow-up. And I started asking the people who should know whether the books were written or who should have written them themselves. And as I got to further advance in my own academic studies and my network expanded, I got to ask giants in the field of Christian philosophy like Alvin Plantinga and Nicholas Walterstorff. And I said, where are the books that help even a student of 18, let alone a more mature thinking person, how to think as a Christian? And you know what they said? They said, you should do that. I said, no, no, you should do that. You're the giants in the field. Said, yes, yes, but we're, we're kind of stuck in analytical philosophy, and you like to browse beyond that. So we'll do our thing, and you do your thing, and, and we'll bless you for it. Oh, well, okay. 30 years later, more or less, uh, out, out comes uh, this book. So I was asking these questions. What do you do? What sources ought we to consider? What modes of interaction with that information ought we to adopt? What authorities should a Christian consult? How do I best listen to these resources and process them? How do I rank them in order of importance? How do I deal with disputes among them between what science says and what my pastor says or between what the nightly news says and, and what I'm reading in a Christian magazine? And what's really Christian about all this anyway? What does it mean to even think Christianly if that even makes sense? Or should you just think well? I mean, what does it mean to think as a Christian? So the answer is the discipline of philosophy known as epistemology, the part of philosophy that deals with, with knowledge. And so the book, Need to Know, is, is my answer after 30-plus years of asking that question. Now, along the way, in this book, I deal with the following elements of Christian thought, among others. I deal with what I think are the crucial roles of intuition, imagination, and art, which isn't typical of the way a lot of Christians think they're supposed to think about things. 
but it seems to me that those should play an important role, and it's important that we specify the role they play rather than simply invoking them. How do we actually use them? How does tradition play a positive but also a negative role in our thinking? I ask and I try to answer here whether evangelical Christians should keep insisting on the inerrancy of the original autographs of the Bible. Spoiler alert, no. But I don't have time to talk about that tonight, so we'll move on. There's Q&A later. The great value of at least some feminist and liberationist epistemologies, the value of those to Christian reflection. In fact, it's really interesting to see how much the kind of Christian epistemology that I found so valuable, like the work of planning at Wolterstorff and so on, is almost isomorphic with some of the work in feminist epistemology. And the two discourses have almost nothing to do with each other. Almost nobody crosses over. Sarah Coakley's done a little bit of that. In her work in theology, she's done it. I've tried to do it in a, in a more stumbling, bumbling way. Sarah's much more graceful than I am. But there's almost no connection. But boy, they really look the same. And they're really, really helpful in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, why it doesn't make sense to say, you have your reality and I have mine. Except when it does make sense to say that. And I try to deal with the question about in a world of competing authorities, how to decide which ones to trust. Tonight, however, I want to pose the basic framework of both the question and the answer at the heart of this book. And I shall do so in terms of what the great Chinese sage Zhuangzi would have called the butterfly question. Namely, do, am I a man dreaming he's a butterfly? All right, or a butterfly dreaming he's a man? And for those of you who haven't committed Taoist philosophy to heart, we can call this the matrix question. Right? And here's another question for good measure. If the first question is, can I be certain of anything? Can I really know that I'm or not in the matrix? Can I really know anything for certain? Here's another question for good measure. Do I need to be certain? So let's roll on and see. This is my initial answer and the title for tonight's talk. Certainly not. Radical doubt, radical faith, and why we can believe anything at all. In the so-called information age, we have more access to more data than ever before. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to break some of my own public speaking rules tonight and do a fair bit of reading. I've been consulting for the last week and a half mostly with uh, the Scots College. Uh, they're my hosts this time uh, down under, and I'll be working with them this next week. And when I haven't been working with them, I have been trying to show my wife, uh, Sydney, who's never been here before. And by the time I've gotten to tonight, um, I'm on reserve. Uh, so I think you'll get a better talk if I don't extemporize. And my wife can assure you you'll get a better talk if I don't extemporize. In fact, she, she cut me off at one glass of wine at supper tonight because she knows what happens when the second glass is involved. I get much funnier, but a little less profound. <laughs> Although I think I'm profound. That's the problem. You see, I, I think I am, but it's not. So, so let's, let's, we'll keep it straight here. In this so-called information age, we have more access to more data than ever before. But paradoxically, in the age of Photoshop and scams and phishing and fake news, we feel less and less able to trust any of that information. Right? That's the fundamental internet paradox. 
get all this information, and we all know that it's a joke when you say, well, I read it on the Internet. Well, what a dismal situation that is, funny as it may be. We seem, despite all of our advances in both scholarship and technology, no closer to certainty than we've ever been. Now, is that a fatal problem for Christians trying to convince others of the truth of the gospel? Should it be a troubling concern even in our day-to-day lives? No and yes. Radical doubt is indeed provoked by the findings of leading experts in a wide range of relevant fields. Many Christians, however, seem to think that they must assert certainty about their belief in the gospel in order to do proper honor to the gospel. They somehow confuse the greatness of the gospel message, which is superlative indeed, with the way they assert it. So many Christians sound like they're quite certain of the gospel. They are dogmatic, we might say, and they insist that other true believers must be certain as well. Well, I'm a true believer, but I also am convinced that we're in very difficult times in which to assert certainty about what we know, even the most interesting and important things like the Christian story. Meanwhile, the new atheists and their ilk seem equally certain that they're right about everything. But, you know, so does almost everyone else these days. Left or right, radical or moderate, whatever people's politics or religion or philosophy or ethics, they all sound like they're right. And those who disagree with them are ipso facto wrong. Not different, wrong. We live in a remarkably intolerant age nowadays. Right? We used to say we were in a time of moral relativism and you do your thing and I do my thing and who can say what's up or down. Those days, if they ever existed, are gone. And now everybody is completely sure of their views on LGBTQ or their views of the environment or their views of immigration policy. And if you're not with them, you're against them. And you're simply wrong. So, in fact, we live in a very different situation. Now, invite me back sometime, and I'll explain to you how we got into this mess and how we can deal with it in public. And one of my abiding concerns is how do we deal with this new era uh, rhetorically? How do we deal with it politically? But for tonight, I'm going to deal with what Tony asked me to discuss, namely our own knowing as Christians. I'm going to take the first longer part of my talk tonight, therefore, to indicate just how very uncertain we ought to be about almost everything. Everything that is short of self-evident statements, such as all bachelors are unmarried, which is true by definition, and awareness of our own mental states. I cannot be wrong that I am feeling pain if I am, in fact, feeling pain. Right? This is typical philosophical qualification. Right? There are certain things about which I can be certain, self-evident statements, true by definition, and state, feeling states. Right? I can't be wrong about saying I'm in pain if I, in fact, am in, in pain. But beyond those very narrow categories, how certain can we be? Well, not very, I suggest. Our doubt, I think, must be radical right down to the ground, right back to the root, which is, of course, the Latin word, radix, of what we think we know. 
But then, before I close for the evening, and anyone feels obliged to turn to even stronger drink than we've had already, <laughs> let's see how radical faith can respond to the challenge of radical doubt. So, radical doubt. One main reason for our lack of certainty is that our brains still process the world the way our ancestors did. That's not a bad way to process the world. Quite the contrary, in fact, it's generally efficient and reliable. But it is a long way from providing us certainty about much of anything. Nobel Prize winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman sums up much of his career's work in his popular book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He suggests that we typically respond to the world in something very like a reflexive mode. Apprehending, comprehending, and responding to what we encounter with as little intellectual effort as possible. We therefore process the world, so to speak, along well-worn intellectual pathways according to habits of apprehension, comprehension, and response that have served us well in the past and require little effort to traverse again. That's the way we tend to think. Our natural resort to such habits, of course, helps us avoid traffic dangers smoothly, return a tennis serve accurately, and greet a stranger at a party politely without spilling our drink. But our reliance on what Kahneman calls System 1 thinking means that we often miss opportunities to apprehend, comprehend, or respond to reality as well as we might or ought. For on the dark side of System 1 thinking is convention bias, even prejudice. Right? That's the dark side of habitual thinking. The very opposites of insightful, creative, and independent thinking. Indeed, system one thinking is what Kahneman calls, quote, a machine for jumping to conclusions, unquote. It's an awfully useful machine. Indeed, we could not survive, let alone thrive without it. But its very speed general reliability and relative ease of use means that we tend always to resort to it unless we feel we simply have to slow down and think about things in a concentrated way. That's system two. The mode of complex calculations, the mode of critical re-examination of information, and the posing of creative alternatives. Even then, however, we use System 2 only as much and for as long as we feel we need to do so. We are, as Kahneman concludes, basically lazy thinkers. Right? We don't want to exert ourselves any more than we have to, as a rule. Now, to be sure, one man's laziness might seem to be just another man's efficiency. You know, if you stopped and critically thought about everything, you'd never get dressed in the morning. Right? So some of this routine thinking is it's actually very helpful. Again, this isn't to say system two is right thinking and system one is wrong thinking. They're both helpful forms of thinking. The problem is when you use the wrong system for the job. And the other point he's making is that we tend always to system one thinking unless we feel we have to go to system two thinking, and we might make that switch too late to do what we should do. Kahneman insists, quote, Anything that makes it easier for the associative machine to run smoothly 
will also bias beliefs. A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguishable from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact, unquote. Now, of course, we must become thoroughly familiar with something in order to understand, assess, and respond to it properly. But Kahneman's point is different. Mere familiarity feels like authenticity. What, in other words, and I'm trying to explain why this works, what keeps showing up in our experience, we tend to read as reality, even in fact, if in fact what keeps showing up is a function of our own choices, like our choice of news media. If I pick certain news media, I'm going to keep getting certain messages because I've chosen the media that will give me those messages. But that reinforces my sense that that's real because in a dangerous world, what keeps showing up without killing you probably won't kill you. And so you start thinking it's benign and in fact, it's fine, it's safe. You see how that works? Or the choices of others who are seeking, of course, to direct our opinions. Indeed, Kahneman's large book bristles with warnings about how we can be nudged or even bamboozled into errors in all sorts of ways by those who capitalize on our habits and particularly our penchant for the easy thought, or even more basically, the vague feeling over the deliberate demanding consideration. Kahneman cautions, quote, confidence is a feeling which reflects what appears to us to be the coherence of the information plus the cognitive ease of processing it. Unquote. Confidence, that is, is not necessarily a sign of truly mastering all the relevant data and applying laborious, skillful effort to interpreting any more than it emerges from a superficial glance at the file and a breezy hop to a conventional conclusion. You see, feeling confident in itself, as we all know, if we just think about it, feeling confident says nothing at all about the actual quality of the thing or concept about which one feels confident, right? The fact that I feel confident says nothing about the truth value of whatever it is I feel confident about. Just like I feel confident about a person says nothing about their actual trustworthiness. But I read it as if it is. Because I feel confident, I'm reading that as if I've made, in fact, an intelligent judgment about reality. That's the scary thing, is that our feelings are misleading us as to what, in fact, we know, when, in fact, it could just be familiar. We're just used to it. Stanford business professor Chip Heath and his Aspen Institute consultant brother Dan confirm from abundant research that the ideas that make the most lasting impulse, let's go to this one just for now. Um, there we go. Chip Heath and his Aspen Institute consultant brother, Dan, confirm from abundant research that the ideas that make the most immediate and lasting impact on people generally have qualities that have nothing to do with their truthfulness. Let me give you that again. There's abundant research that the ideas that make the most immediate and lasting impact on people generally have qualities that have nothing to do with their veracity. Simplicity, unexpectedness, concreteness, a measure of credibility, emotional impact, 
and a vivid, exemplifying narrative, also known as a good story. Thus, contrary ideas that are more complex, that seem banal or abstract or only equally credible, dull, and bereft of a fascinating story, can't compete, even if they have the single quality that matters, that they're true. Does this sound like certain styles of advertising? Of course it does. And certain kinds of political speech making? You bet. Most insidious at all, of all, certain kinds of best-selling books on spirituality and the sermons of certain kinds of superstar preachers. Right? who trade, they, they have all those wonderful qualities that make ideas stick. It's nothing to do with whether they're telling the truth. Simple, surprising, concrete, credible, moving, with a great story, none of those is an indicator of whether something's true. Now, one might assume that those we trust as authorities can rise above the habits of the mass. People like... Well, myself, for instance, right? People with many degrees and lofty academic positions. Experts, we sometimes call them. You'd think that those people would rise above these sad little habits of the, the little people, the hoi polloi, and, and be able to, in fact, come to much, much better conclusions. Yet journalist David Friedman will keep you awake at night by his book-length study with the wonderful title, Wrong, <laughs> Just how frequently experts have been, yes, wrong, nonetheless. Why experts keep failing us and how to know when not to trust them. Let me select just two stories of the many in his entertaining and thoroughly disconcerting book. In 1997, the University of Michigan football team decided to give one of its longtime bench warmers a shot at a little playing time in his junior year of college. Now, at one point, this young quarterback had been ranked on the football team behind six other quarterbacks. And understandably, he considered transferring to a school at which he would have a better chance of playing. But he hung in there, and they finally gave him a shot in his junior year. He took full advantage of his opportunity, however, and he won the starting spot as the quarterback of the University of Michigan team. And he went on to set Michigan records for most pass attempts and completions. Yet he was utterly ignored when it came time to consider candidates for the Heisman Trophy, which is awarded to the best player in U.S. university football. And even lesser awards eluded him. He received only an honorable mention on a regional all-star squad. No big deal. In the draft of the National Football League, the top level, as you, many of you know, of American-style football, he suffered further ignominy as he was selected 199th and only by a team that was using an extra pick to make up for the loss of a few players during the offseason. He was promptly ranked behind three other quarterbacks on this professional team. But a year later, a teammate's injury led this young player to once again getting an unexpected shot, at which point it took him only the rest of that season to become widely considered what Friedman calls, quote, pro football's most devastatingly effective quarterback, unquote. He has since then led his team to a record seven championship games, which many of you know is the Super Bowl, winning five of them and being named Super Bowl Most Valuable Player a record four times. That Michigan bench warmer was, of course, Tom Brady of the New England Patriots, 
arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. Now, sports fans, however many of us there are, in our calmer moments, recognize that the hunt for the next great athlete is a matter of relatively limited consequentiality. The hunt for the cure for cancer, however, is obviously of the greatest moment. Surely, in the realm of medical research, the most important research we could possibly conduct, expert knowledge surely there is sure and sound. Well, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. John Ioannidis, and you'll never sleep well again. Ioannidis is an expert in the study of expert medical studies. He has impressive credentials. He graduated first in his class from the University of Athens Medical School. He completed a residency at Harvard in internal medicine and then took up a research and clinical appointment at Tufts University in infectious diseases. But while at Tufts, he began to notice that a wide range of medical treatment did not rest on solid scientific evidence. While working next at the National Institutes of Health and Johns Hopkins University in the 1990s, Ioannidis noted that Two-thirds of hundreds of medical studies he read in the scholarly literature were either fully refuted or pronounced exaggerated within a few years of their publication. Now, this seems uh, somewhat troubling. Be more troubled, however, as Friedman continues his narrative. Quote, Ioannidis had been examining only the less than one-tenth of one percent of published medical research that makes it into the most prestigious medical journals. He wasn't cherry-picking cherry picking the crappy journals. He was looking at the best journals, and that's the number he came with. Uh, shall I remind you? Two-thirds of those studies were refuted or pronounced exaggerated within a few years of their study. Now, Ioannidis did find one group of studies that more often than not remained unrefuted randomized controlled studies that appeared in top journals and were cited in other researchers' papers an extraordinary 1,000 times or more. That's the standard, okay? Such studies are extremely rare. They represent the absolute tip of the tip of the pyramid of medical research. Yet one-fourth of even these studies were later refuted, and that rate might, might have been much higher were it not for the fact that no one even tried to confirm the results of nearly half the rest. End quote. Friedman paints a horrifying picture of experts who trust their intuitions over evidence that they have at hand, let alone evidence that they could get but do not bother to obtain. Dr. Atul Gawande, himself a medical school professor, writes about his colleagues, medical colleagues, characteristic refusal to face basic data regarding frequent and preventable medical problems that are attributable to skilled professionals making dumb mistakes. To them, the idea that a skilled professional could make such a dumb mistake was literally unthinkable. Despite all the statistics, they could not accept that this was happening in operating rooms around the United States. People leaving stuff inside, patients, for instance. People forgetting to give the proper post-op meds, and so on. Gawande compares this dangerous attitude of refusing to accept the data that's presented with aircraft pilot training that early and repeatedly pounds into students' heads that they must not trust their instincts but their instruments. 
and they must, in fact, consult and follow their checklist. In other words, the data that matter most, you might feel with every nerve of your body that you are flying level and right side up. But if your instruments say otherwise, it is a lethal arrogance to trust your expertise over theirs. You might look around the operating room at your talented and familiar team and believe without a shadow of a doubt that your patient is ready for surgery. But if the scrub nurse cannot confirm it by her checklist, you are culpably foolish to proceed. Right. You wonder why you sit on the tarmac so long? It's because those guys are going through their checklists. And you walk in, if you ever see the cabin, I've got several friends who are pilots, that's what they're doing. They're not talking about what stake they're going to have at the other end. Eventually they will. Once they're up and on autopilot, that's what they do. But while they're sitting there, they want to get up as soon as they can too. And it's going through massive checklists. Well, I trust I've bothered you enough, but to confirm your permanent insomnia, <laughs> journalist Julian Scher examines the world of forensic science and finds many instances of wrongful convictions in courts. He points to a 2009 study published in the Virginia Law Review that surveyed the cases of 137 convicted persons who were later exonerated by DNA evidence and found that in more than half of the trials, forensic experts gave invalid testimony, including errors about shoe prints and hair samples. That same year, the National Academy of Sciences published a book-length report warning that even fingerprint matches can be misleading and calling for a drastically improved approach to forensic science. So much then for people's fates being determined by the clear, cold, infallible judgment of the scientific expert witness. So much for the entire CSI franchise too, but I won't talk about that now. As the world now begins to shimmer <laughs> even more before our eyes and the solid ground beneath our feet threatens to evanesce, along comes historian Alison Winter to offer an entire book about the questionable reliability of memory. What we do not readily comprehend, and especially what does not fit within our set of presuppositions, does that sound like Kahneman's System 1? Right? Let me say it again. What we do not readily comprehend, and especially what does not fit easily within our set of presuppositions, does not tend to register with us immediately and clearly, if at all. Or afterward, it doesn't get charged into memory. Conversely, what we expect to experience or afterward believe we must have experienced gets written into our memories despite whatever actually happened. Contrary, that is, to the popular notion that somewhere buried in our brains is a perfect recording of everything we've ever experienced, Winter shows through her study of the last century of memory research that our minds instead are constantly coding what we experience as memorable, sort of memorable, not memorable, and the like, according to our understanding of the world and according to our valuing of this or that element in the world. Moreover, our, our memories are plastic, and they remain vulnerable to addition, subtraction, deformation, reformation, confabulation, and other processes as our lives progress and as our beliefs change. Rather than our memories being fixed, 
voracious imprints of the external world upon our minds is a fiction. Stuff happened, our brains did something with it, and they keep doing stuff with it over the years, depending on what we think had to have happened because of what we believe about the world. The 17th century scientist and theologian Blaise Pascal anticipated our postmodern doubts, 17th century, as he warned, quote, man is nothing but a subject full of natural error that cannot be eradicated except through grace. Nothing shows him the truth. Everything deceives him. This is a scientist, right, a philosopher. He says, the two principles of truth, reason and the senses, are not only both not genuine, but they are engaged in mutual deception. The senses deceive reason through false appearances, and just as they trick the soul, they are tricked by it in their turn, and it takes its revenge, that is, reason. The senses are disturbed by passions, which produce false impressions. They both compete in lies and deception." Unquote. So what then can we possibly trust in our quest for knowledge? If we cannot trust our own senses, reason, memory, or even those of the most expert experts in our society, are we simply lost in the blooming, buzzing confusion of an incomprehensible world? Well, in a word, yes. Yes, we are. Now I need some water. <laughs> Let's see if we can offer some more soothing words after these disruptive ones. Contemporary Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, a philosopher so accomplished that despite the widespread prejudice in his discipline against Christians, he was elected president of the American Philosophical Association. He shrugs off this storm of frightening doubt with the robust common sense of his Dutch forebears. This is Plantinga. Such Christian thinkers as Pascal, Kierkegaard, and Kuyper recognize that there aren't any certain foundations of the sort René Descartes sought, or if there are, they are exceedingly slim. And there's no way to transfer their certainty to our important non-foundational beliefs about material objects, the past, other persons, and the like. This is a stance, Plantinga allows, that requires a certain epistemic hardihood. There is indeed such a thing as truth. The stakes are indeed very high. It matters greatly whether you believe the truth. But there is no way to be sure that you have the truth. There is no sure and certain method of attaining truth by starting from beliefs about which you cannot be mistaken and moving infallibly to the rest of your beliefs. Furthermore, many other people reject what seems to you to be most important. This is life under uncertainty, life under epistemic risk and fallibility. I believe a thousand things, and many of them are things others, others of great acuity and seriousness, do not believe. Indeed, many of the beliefs that mean the most to me are of that sort. I realize I can be seriously 
dreadfully, fatally wrong. And wrong about what it is enormously important to be right. That is simply the human condition, and my response must be finally, here I stand, this is the way the world appears to me. Unquote. That was all Plantinga. In this attitude, Plantinga follows in the cheerful train of Thomas Reed, known for his excellent taste in headgear. Well, he's Scottish, and it's always cold in Scotland, right? I mean, if I had to live in Scotland, and I'm teaching at New College Edinburgh, I'm going to have something like that on pretty much all the time, too. So we'll get past the hat and get on to the substance here. Plantinga is following in the cheerful train of Thomas Reed, the great Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Reed devotes a great deal of energy in his work to demolishing what he sees to be a misguided approach to knowledge, which he calls the way of ideas. Unfortunately, for standard brand modern philosophy, and even for most of the rest of us non-philosophers, this way of ideas that Thomas Reed demolishes is not some odd little branch, but the main trunk of epistemology from Descartes and Locke forward to Kant. He blows it all up, the entire modern Western epistemological conversation. So let me show you what he does. The way of ideas, capital W, capital I, the way of ideas that Reed opposes, roughly speaking, is the basic scheme of perception by which the things out there, say a basket of apples, somehow cause us to have ideas of them, a basket of apples, in our minds. And thus we form appropriate beliefs about them. They are red and round, they number nine, and so on, right? Reed contends, startlingly, that any such scheme in the history of philosophy actually fails to explain what's actually happening. How do apples out there somehow provoke apple-like impressions in here? In fact, Reed pulverizes this scheme as simply incoherent, even though this way of being in the world is so basic that most of us take it for granted, even if we couldn't actually explain it. We just, you know, we, we, we might call this the, the problem of the external world, but Reed says it remains intractable. We just don't know how we reliably get in here, in our minds, what is out there in the world. How, how would we know that there's a basket of apples there. Well, I, I see one. How do you know that? Because I have a basket of apples in my mind. But how do you know that that corresponds in any way to physical objects in the, in the real world? Right? Once you start down that path, you can pretty quickly see that it doesn't matter whether your name is Descartes or Locke or Hume or Kant. There's no really good way to know that. It's not surprising he's a contemporary of Hume and a countryman. So, having set aside the way of ideas, namely all modern epistemology, as a mess, Reed then stuns the reader with this declaration, quote, I do not attempt to substitute any other theory in its place, unquote. <laughs> Reed asserts instead that it is, quote, a mystery, unquote, how we form beliefs about the world that actually do seem to correspond to the world as it is. Reed happily grants that our beliefs generally have the virtue of helping us negotiate the world pretty well. Now, the, the philosopher who has followed Reed to this point may well be aghast. What? 
she might sputter. You've destroyed the main scheme of modern Western epistemology only to say that you don't have anything better to offer in its place? What kind of a philosopher are you? A Christian one, Reed's replies. For Reed takes great comfort in, well, in what? Reed takes great comfort in trusting God. But not for his salvation, as some Christians might expect him to say. Reed does trust God for that. But also, also, for creating the world such that human beings seem eminently well-equipped to apprehend and live in it. Reed encourages readers, therefore, to thank God for this provision, what he calls this bounty of heaven, and to obey God in confidence that God continues to provide the means, including the epistemic means, to do so. Right? If God wants us to obey him, he has to give us the means to do so, including reliable knowledge of the world. Otherwise, we couldn't do it. So we can trust him to do it. Furthermore, Reed affirms, any other position than grateful acceptance of the fact that we believe the way we do just because that's the way we are is not just intellectually untenable, but almost biblically foolish. Thus, Thomas Reed dispenses with modern hubris on the one side, we can know pretty much everything, thanks a lot, and postmodern despair, can't know anything, on the other. To those who would say, I'm certain I now sit upon this chair, Reed would reply, good luck proving that. To those who would say, you just think you're sitting in a chair now, but in fact you could be anyone, anywhere, just imagining that you're sitting in a chair, maybe you're in the matrix. He would simply snort and perhaps chastise them for their ingratitude for the knowledge that they have gained so effortlessly by the grace of God. Having shown that certainty is not available to us about almost everything we think we know, Reed puts the burden of proof where it belongs, on the radical skeptic, who has to show why we should doubt what seems so immediately evident, rather than on the believer who has to show why one ought to believe what seems effortless to believe. Darkness, Reed writes, is heavy upon all epistemological investigation. We know through our own action that we are the efficient causes of things. I know that I'm moving the glass, right, through my own experience. We know that God is too. More than this, however, we cannot say, since we cannot peer into the essences of things. And you can tell again that he's a contemporary and a countryman of David Hume. He agrees. We can't know. I can't know exactly what's going on here, atoms, molecules, energy fields, and so on, but I'm pretty sure I'm moving the glass. And it would be stupid of me not to believe that, even if I can't explain both what's going on and how I know it. Right? That's the middle ground Reed is setting out. Reed commends to us all sorts of inquiries, including scientific ones, but he recognizes that we will always be stymied at some level by the four-year-old's incessant question, but why? Right? Such explanations always come back to questions of efficient causation. Why does this make that happen? And human reason simply cannot lay bare the way things are in themselves so as to see how things do cause each other to be this or that way. Hume, David Hume, therefore was right on this score, read allows. 
But unlike Hume, very much unlike Hume, Reed is cheerful about us carrying on anyway with the practically reliable beliefs we generally do form as God wants us to do. Far from being paralyzed by epistemological doubt, therefore, Reed offers all of us a thankful epistemology of trust and obedience. Now, I need another drink of water and take a deep breath. Do we need that kind of radical faith to counter our radical doubt? The Bible gives us infallible truth, doesn't it? Well, I believe it does. But I don't know how I could know such a thing beyond question. And I don't believe that I interpret the Bible infallibly. In fact, I don't believe that anyone does. Do you? Well, what about the Holy Spirit then? Again, the indwelling of every believer by the Holy Spirit is a precious truth, which I believe. But lots of people have powerful spiritual experiences of various sorts that lead them to various sorts of ideas and actions, and I think some of them are wrong. How could I be certain that my experience, unlike theirs, is correct? And beyond spiritual matters, I don't see the Bible promising that the Holy Spirit will help every serious Christian score 100% in every math test, or on any other test, for that matter. The Apostle, instead, says, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. More profoundly than I think we normally acknowledge. We walk trusting our senses, trusting our memories, trusting our worldviews, and in the face of all this doubt about all these good but fallible gifts of God, trusting God. But see all the trust that's involved there? God originally called humanity to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over all that God had made, Genesis 1, and thereby to work with God to make the world all it can be. Therefore, it seems to me, we can trust God to give us at least enough knowledge of the world to care for it properly. Right? If he called us to do it, he has to give us what we need to do it. So we can trust him to give us enough knowledge of the world that we can then exercise our calling properly, even as we try faithfully to learn more about it so we can do the job better. God also called the church to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, and to thereby work with God to help humanity become all we can be. Therefore, similarly, we can trust God to give us at least enough knowledge of ourselves and of our fellow human beings to evangelize and disciple each other properly, even as we try faithfully to learn more about ourselves so we can help each other better along the path of discipleship. Even more particularly, God calls particular groups of people and particular individuals to particular ways of thinking because they're called to different ways of making shalom and making disciples. Modern societies feature various levels and agencies of the state, different forms of family, businesses, schools, healthcare facilities, churches, missionary agencies, mass entertainments, high arts, news media, and so on. These various instances of shalom making and disciple making have particular ways of knowing and particular bodies of knowledge that are best suited to the fulfillment of their callings. Again, then, 
I'm saying God can be trusted to provide what these institutions and individuals need distinctively, including epistemically, to fulfill their callings. So, I'm suggesting, along with Reed and others, that we rejoice in the gracious providence of God who always supplies our needs in order for us to fulfill his calling upon our lives. He gives us, as we pray, our daily bread. In metaphorical terms of knowledge, as well as in literal terms of nourishment. Let's also be humble enough to realize how little we know. How little we know about the accuracy and completeness of what we think we know. And how much we have to trust God to guide, correct, and increase what we know according to his good purposes. God calls us and provides for us, including in the realm of knowledge, especially in the case of our conversation tonight. So, do we know enough to get to work and make shalom? Well, yes, yes we do. Do we know enough to bear witness and make disciples? Well, yes we do. Do we need to claim certainty in order to fulfill the callings of God in these days? Well, no, we don't. What we need to know, we know. Or at least we can know, as a gift of God. But we know what we know only, I suggest, on a need-to-know basis. So, we have knowledge enough. But certainty isn't on offer. But confidence is. And confidence Con fide, with faith, confidence is on offer. It's always available to the child of God who earnestly seeks to do God's will and who asks for it. Praise God. And, and that's enough. Thanks. So I try usually with topics like this to speak so long that there's no time for questions, but unfortunately I screwed up and there is a little time, I think. Uh, so let's take some time for questions, and not just questions. Uh, they can be uh, statements, they can be bold refutations, and even personal insults if it has to come to that. Uh, I hope it won't. I'm a pretty tender person, but still, bring it. Nobody's above criticism, and certainly not me, so I would be glad to uh, hear from you now. Yes, sir? What's the role of conversation amongst communities when there's Everybody can hear the question okay? Yep. It's too bad because it's a tough one. <laughs> I was hoping to rephrase it. You know, what's your favorite color? Blue, thank you. Next one. Right. For, the, for the mic? Yes, okay. What's the role of communities, especially diverse communities, as we try to find our way forward? Would that be a, a fair rephrasing? And the role of conversation. The role of conversation, thank you, of, of communities. Uh, one of the ways in which I think feminist and liberationist epistemologies have helped me is to think in those terms, that there are all these communities of conversation that are, to some extent, of course, mutually reinforcing, because they're similar and we have affinity, so we tend to tell each other things we like to hear, and that's why we like hanging out. Right? If you continually tell me things I don't like to hear, it puts a strain in our friendship. Whereas if we, in fact, reinforce each other's beliefs, we tend to hang out and reinforce them even further. So if I'm serious about trying to come to the truth about a matter, 
one of the most helpful things I can do is to step back and look at other communities who also are interested in the same subject but aren't like mine and to try to listen to them and see what they have to say. In, in, in America, when I talk to Americans, I'll say it's, it's literally going from CNN to Fox News, right? Now, some people, their heads would explode if that happened, and we have to just pray for them. But it would mean, you know, in this case, putting aside the Sydney Morning Herald and reading The Australian. <laughs> I know, I know, it's more like that. It could be that concern that, that if I'm, I mean, I was in a room recently consulting, and it didn't seem to occur to anybody in the room that there was a problem with the fact that there were no non-men in the room. But I felt that perhaps the community that we know as women might have something interesting to say about some of the issues we were discussing, uh, let alone people of other classes, other ethnic groups, and so on. Uh, and particularly, I would say, uh, it's important to consult the people who are going to be most victimized or oppressed by what's happening in that particular zone of knowledge, because they don't know everything, but they certainly have a very important angle of vision that I'd have to consult. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm instructing the question lately about um, the way certain people express their, um, their biblical views, maybe preaching, teaching, uh, where their training has been in, say, a theology that is very logical, positivist in the way it's been put together. Um, and it seems to me that some people assume that their epistemology is inherent in the kerygma. Can you comment on that problem? It seems to me there's a fundamental problem when we think a particular epistemology is inherent in the what the Bible gives to us, gives to us much more as narrative than anything else. And somebody once said the Bible is a very postmodern document because you get bits and pieces of different epistemologies and cultures, and yet you've got the same big story. But it seems to me conversion means where our story becomes embedded in that story. That's a different kind of way of thinking than the Greek rationalist tradition. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of shorthand in there, which I'll have to try to translate a bit, and especially for the, the questioner. Um, different sorts of Christians, uh, if I can paraphrase this now, and please tell me if I do, do a good job of it. Um, different sorts of Christians uh, see different kinds of, of ways of knowledge or ways of thinking in Scripture. Uh, they feel they're justified in Scripture. Uh, the particular sort that our question is concerned about are those that I think work in a propositional sort of way, deducting uh, or deducing uh, theological principles from what they see to be first principles. They derive directly from Scripture, and they think that's what they're supposed to do because they think they see that happening in Scripture itself. Am I tracking with you more or less? Whereas Scripture is uh, generally a narrative, uh, generally tends to be evocative, and uh, at least as much connotative as it is denotative, um, is suggestive as much as it is uh, prescriptive, and so on. Am I in the right zone with you about that? Uh, and, and it seems to me this is one of the really unhappy arguments of our day um, because I'd say you're all kind of right. Uh, Paul and every other theological thinker in the Bible does argue from these principles to those principles. Since these things are true, therefore, you should be this kind of person, you should act this kind of way, you should trust God for these things, you should hope for these things, that kind of if-then-this happens all over the Bible. Uh, this even happens in the Ten Words, right? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. It doesn't make sense that you would have any other gods before me since I'm the one. So that, in a sense, is a kind of logical inference that is justified by events. 
So the, the, to me, it's really, really unhappy to pose narrative against proposition as if one is inherently better than the other, right? Um, they are different ways of usefully getting at certain kinds of conversations and certain kinds of data. And uh, one of the things I've been impressed with in reading someone like uh, McGilchrist and, and others is to say that, like, why choose? Like, bring them together in a coherent way. By all means, use propositional and careful kinds of analytical uh, terms. By all means, take narratives and analyze them too. But make sure you put them back together again and you come up with a better way of seeing the gestalt, the whole, subject to the next round of analysis and questioning and study. And it should be a kind of rolling way in which we learn more and more, we trust better and better about what God has for us. So the, the sort of narrative versus propositional thing um, it strikes me as, as two communities that have both reduced scripture too much to one versus the other, when scripture is actually quite complex and interestingly so, right? Does that help? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Tony? Uh, just to comment on both questions, I was seeing how the approach you're advocating eliminates the character of God, which is what we're all striving for. He is multifaceted. Can't put him into any box. Um, so propositional versus narrative, they're alternatives that make sense to us, but he encloses mm. all things within himself. And to broaden my apprehension of him, I've got to actually be stretched in both ways. And I, I love the thought that Paul says the the mystery, which the great mystery, which will culminate the universe, is when. God will cohere all things in Christ. So there's a sense of Christ being a coherence of multiple opposites, which has a lot to say, I think, about what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then the other thought I had, which was probably a version of that thought from the previous question about diverse communities, is empathy. You know, that actually to stretch myself to get into someone else's shoes is a very uncomfortable Thing, but it's actually what Christ did in becoming incarnate. And mm -hmm. So we're, as we're stretched like this, we're getting towards you know, the character of our, our dear God. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Tony's been sharing about how these different considerations remind us that, that uh, God is appropriately apprehended through all the valid ways of knowing, since he's the great subject as well as the great object of our, of our attention. And the Bible itself, not surprisingly, God's written word is complex in these various ways, and, and we're foolish to, to try to pose one over, uh, over the other. I mean, it's interesting to look at, at Paul himself as an example in the New Testament. He just oscillates effortlessly back and forth between propositional, inferential kinds of logic, and then he reminds of, 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 of his audience of uh, snatches of Old Testament scripture and of stories in, in the Bible. And Paul's a pretty sophisticated theologian. A much less sophisticated theologian would be someone like John, who writes the first letter attributed to John, and he gives us some of the starkest most uh, naked propositions about God in the Bible. God is love. God is light. There are actually very few copulas in the Bible, but the two, two of the best are in the same letter by fisherman Elder John. 
who then says what our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, what, we don't, what we've touched with our hands. This, this we declare to you about the truth of God. So the, the disciples and, and the apostles don't seem to feel they have to pick. And, and I think it would be best if we didn't either. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about evangelizing and going out into the world with gospel. And I'm thinking of Thomas Reed stuff, and uh, if, so you evangelize and you say, well, why does this? And you say, well, it, it works like that, because we, we just trust God, mm-hmm. you know. And that can sound to our world like, <coughs> oh, you've got your God of the gaps back, you've got your God who fills in all the little bits you don't know for you. And I'm not saying that's what he's saying, but that's how the message would come across. Good. So what, what my question is asking me is that Thomas Reed's approach sounds like we have made a kind of a massive step backward uh, away from really engaging our intelligent friends by saying that the grounds in which we assert what we assert about the gospel is simply we believe it because we believe it because God gave it to us and what we have is a kind of fideism, right? I think, I think what Reed would say is, yeah, it is fideism, so would I. But it's a really well-grounded, well-argued fideism. It isn't an abandonment of reason. It's actually running reason as far as it can go and seeing what happens. It's actually running our approach to the scientific method and seeing how far it takes us and then where it actually peters out. And that's why I quoted from these various domains of knowledge all of these are pretty smart people, all of whom are pretty invested in figuring out the way things are. And all these testimonies I brought you from across this landscape is meant to say these are really smart people dealing with the best evidence they can, arguing as, as carefully and as cogently as they can. And they all seem to come up with the same really awful conclusion, which is we don't really know very much in a dependable way. And that's why I took all that time to make that point, which I would with other audiences as well, Christian or, or otherwise, to say that, yes, before I want to advance the importance of faith, I have to give you good reason to need it. Because if, like Laplace, you have no need of that hypothesis, then of course you're going to turn me off. But, so some of the apologetic work I have to do here is to blow stuff up, right? Say, I'm really confident that the scientific method can tell me everything I need to know. (coughs) No, it won't, right? Well, I really think my intuition can tell me everything I need to know. (coughs) No, it won't. This is actually part of the fun of apologetics. (laughs) Blowing stuff up, right? You do it in a kind, gentle, loving way, but it's still fun. Kaboom, kaboom. Uh, Because otherwise people wouldn't feel they know it. Um, So so it, it is actually tricky. So when I've done some of this, taken some of this material in a different form on university campuses, I've tried to talk uh, in, in terms of uh, the history of ideas about the state we're in now when we really don't know as much as we think we do. And I get a lot of pushback on that because people think they know. So you have to make a fairly strong case that they don't. It's kind of been interesting that if Thomas Reed and Emmanuel Kant were in the same tutorial, they could have a, a good, because Kant gets things as oh, look, we just, he actually kind of says, it could be this or it could be that. We don't know, you know, whether the, uh, in lots of things about uh, about God or anything, and he kind of the problem is a skeptic has taken hold of that. And Reed's come in and said, "You don't have to be skeptical here. We can have faith." That's right. And we can actually know, but we don't know in the sense of uh, certainty. 
what a naturalist right. would want us to know, like, we have faith in God about this. Yes, well, I think when it comes to the dialogue of, of, of Reed and Kant, I mean, I think Reed thinks Kant's the devil, uh, and I do too, frankly. Uh, in some ways, I think I think that Kant uh, says a lot of the right things and comes to just dreadful conclusions. Well, that's right. If he had right? Reed there, yeah, he gone. yeah, it would have been a very interesting conversation because Reed is at once skeptical and faithful. Right? He's he, that's what I mean. It's radical skepticism. I think I think I have to be radically skeptical, but then I can also be radically faithful. That's the paradox. Whereas if you don't have faith, then you're left with radical skepticism alone, and that's a pretty lonely place to be. And just to kind of, the, the problem I find is that uh, the, the jump into naturalism, if you like, which is that oh, we don't have to consider God, is really very hard to breach in conversation quite often. It's like, you know, well, this, we're not even going to look at the question if there's of God. That's right. Thing. Whereas Reed is saying, well, you can't. That's, that's one, of, one of Reed's, one of the advantages that Reed's thought gives us is that he, he responds to the skepticism that we can mount without his help or without any particular Christians, like all the stuff I gave you as grounds to doubt what we think you know. None of that was particularly Christian. None of it was religious, right? It's all pretty straightforward accessible stuff from the world of the NFL, for crying out loud, you know, the world of medicine and law. And I deliberately did that. There's nothing religious about that. That's just what smart people have seen as they've looked at the world. And when I've talked in university campuses about, you know, especially in the wake of Dawkins and company, um, is to simply say science is a great, wonderful gift of God, and so is technology in general, although of course technology can be terrible, but technology as it, as, you know, I don't want to give up electricity and clean water and pasteurization, like, like uh, technology can be really good as tools. But it's, it's such a limited way of looking at the world. And then I go into looking at beauty, looking at morality, looking at other things that other philosophers, of course, greater than I have done in the past and say, science just can't help us there. It has nothing to say uh, about those things. And it is simply a massive category mistake for Dawkins and others to think that it can. It just has nothing to say about whether that's beautiful and that isn't, or whether that's morally right or morally wrong. Science can tell you literally nothing about that if you understand science properly. So lots of people just have to be helped by that, but we're there to help them. So we can, we should. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you thought theologically about perhaps the role of God's silence or hiddenness in, the, in our history right now when, I guess in a space of um, uncertainty, uh, God could quite easily cut through that uncertainty and yet he remains hidden and silent to some degree. Um, have you thought theologically about why God would have us in that, that kind of moment? Well, as it turns out, yes. Yes, I have thought about um, <laughs> God's hiddenness and silence and why God doesn't just tell us things that we'd like to know. Um, uh, in fact, I wrote a whole book called Can God Be Trusted? Faith in the Challenge of Evil. And that's the most acute zone of God's silence, right, is when somebody's suffering. I mean, I, I kind of like to know about dark matter and dark energy, but what I really want to know is why did my wife suffer a terrible back injury three years ago from which she is not fully recovered? I really want to know that, right? right? And why has God, who knows how to use email as well as I do, 
why has he not told me? Or told her, even more importantly, why she has been crippled at 61 when she was extremely fit and has had her life's work in physiotherapy taken away from her long before she would normally have had it taken away. Right? So yeah, I've had occasion to think about this. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the immediate answer is, if God can do something that seems obviously good, and he doesn't do it, then it's a challenge to my faith to believe, <laughs> does God have a good reason to do that? I don't have to think of the good reason, I just have to decide whether I believe that God has one. See the difference? I can't always figure out, and I don't, I, don't, I don't have to, but I do have to have adequate grounds to believe that God is always good even when he appears not to be. And that's why this really comes to the problem of evil most acutely and then radiates out to other things as well. I mean, one of the quick answers, though, I think that's important is one of the reasons in the Bible we see that God doesn't explain what God's doing even to his favorites. And the whole book of Job's about that. But so is Habakkuk, right? So parts of, of Hosea. Like, why are you asking me to do that? Like, it's all over the Bible. And he, re, he routinely doesn't tell even his favorites why he's doing what he's doing. Almost as if he's trying to teach them something, which I think is called faith. Like, will you trust me even when you seem to have good reason not to? Right? Again, I don't think it's naked fideism. I don't think it's faith as a kind of gritting of the teeth there have, has to be good reason to believe that God's trustworthy. And one of the reasons I think I and other people struggle with faith in God is that I have not enjoyed such a walk with God that I have built up a good evidentiary base, so to speak, that when God seems to misbehave, I trust him anyway. Right? Whereas when my wife seems to do something peculiar or even insulting or rude, I assume she's not trying to hurt me because I've been married to her a long time. So I just assume I misunderstood. Now, I'm not that saintly, right? I don't always do that. But I really should, right? I mean, after 37 years of marriage to a woman who's been with me through thick and thin, I should, my default position should be she's not trying to hurt me, right? And it would be a mark of my own immaturity if I didn't get there. And that's how it should be with God. I should have had such a rich relationship and experience of God by now that when he temporarily lets me down, I don't freak out. I just, okay, God's doing some strange thing again, which if he's actually the supreme being, I should expect him to do from time to time. Right? I should expect him to do things I don't, I don't understand. If God always did everything that was intelligible to me, he would be disqualified from the office of supreme being. Right? <laughs> Because he's not doing anything really interesting anymore. He's just doing what I can imagine. Right? That's a quick answer to a big question. Yeah, thanks. Uh, time for a couple more. Tony? Yeah? Okay. Why do you um, pick Reed as offering a particularly attractive Christian epistemology? It seems to me there's a number of other plausible candidates. I mean, I'm a bit partial to Newman's epistemology and also So, uh, my friend Paul's asking me, well, why did I pick on Thomas Reed instead of a whole lot of other candidates of which he could name only one? Mm -hmm. Newman. Give me a couple more that you think are really good. I think Gadamer's got some pretty good 
Mm, Gadamer, yeah, yeah. So I'm teasing Paul because I love him and he needs teasing. Right? Right? So, you know, we give people what they need and we love them. I'm also stalling. It's a good, it's a good question. I come to read actually pretty late in the game, Paul. My epistemology is mostly formed in the train of planting of Wolterstorff and the American neo-Calvinist tradition. And um, particularly when I read Nick Wolterstorff's book-length study of Reed, I thought, holy smokes, this guy says some things that I've been stumbling my way toward. And so it's not so much that I follow Reed as that I use him as a mouthpiece here to say things that I think are helpful to say. And he says them so radically and so helpfully that I'm, I'm doing that. But I don't, I'm not a particular expert on Reed. I've read far more of these other more contemporary figures. And when I've looked at Gadamer, as I have, uh, when I've looked at um, a certain Roman Catholic epistemologists as well, um, I find that, not that I disagree so much, is that I already kind of got there with the help of these guys. So it happens to be uh, the horse that I took to get to the same place. So it's not to uh, prefer them to the others so much as this is the tradition that's helped me find my answers in the limited time I've been able to read and think about it. Yeah. Sure. So thanks. That's a really good question. And I'm always glad to learn about other traditions that I just don't know much about yet. Okay. Particularly in Reed's case, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm not a particular Reedian. He just happens to serve this rhetorical function in this kind of, uh, this part of my, my work. Okay. It's kind of wrong if someone had the answers. That seems like a very gnomic saying. I don't know what that means. Tell me what you mean. It's kind no, of wrong if someone had the answers. Thomas Reed has all the answers. Oh, yeah, yeah. It'd be kind of something a bit weird. It would be, yeah. That's right. That's right. It would be uh, self-referentially incoherent, right? For yeah, yeah. I agree. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's about six really good questions there. So let me just, <laughs> let me, let me, uh, that's all right. That's all right. Things are connected to other things. That's perfectly fine. And I'll just pick the ones I want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> And hope you've forgotten about the others. Uh, but you can repose them if you need to. So if I, if I work backward a little bit, I think the, the, the most straightforward part is how do we, and I'm going to repose the question, how do we help people move from their settled convictions about things, which you're attaching with to System 1 thinking, to giving that uh, critical look in System 2? Right, so far? I mean, that part of what you were saying? Um, and this a little bit goes back to what we were saying. Uh, one of the points that Kahneman makes, other people make too, but it's a helpful way he puts it. We don't tend to move to system two thinking unless we feel we have to, because system one is easy. And that's true of prejudice generally, right? I mean, if my current stock of conventional ideas continues to work, why would I question them? I mean, who's got time for that, right? I mean, I, I want, I, there's a game on. I mean, I want to get home and watch it, right? Or I, I want to kiss my wife, or I want to play with my kids. Like, why would I have a big think about the big issues of the world if what I currently think is working fine? And this is one of, of course, the, the real uh, difficulties of trying to share the gospel among middle and upper class people in Sydney is like, I'm fine. Right? There's no place to grab onto. There's, it's a beautiful, smooth surface of uh, lack of need. And, and I think then we, we simply wait because eventually life's going to kick them in the head. You know, eventually things aren't going to work. But you sometimes have to wait decades. But it will, and you stay in relationship with them, and, and you love them because you should love them anyway, not just so you can evangelize them because you love them. But if you do love them and you're friends with them, eventually things aren't going to work, but it might be quite a while. But there's no way to, to do that. The, what you can do, I suppose, is what we were talking about, which is if they're open to it, you can engage in friendly demolition of their uh, <laughs> conventional beliefs. But that trades pretty heavily on your friendship, doesn't it? Because most people won't thank you for making them uncomfortable. Um, it's because nobody likes to be uncomfortable. So boy, there better be a good payoff on the other side, and they better trust you to bring them there, or they're going to resent you and, and, and stop, you know, be defensive. And that's just a natural reaction. And it's really helpful to see that it's a natural reaction and not simply a demonic one or not simply resistance to the gospel. It is the way we're wired. We're wired to resist changing our minds if everything's working fine. So we don't have to attribute that necessarily to sin. It's the way we're, we're, we're wired. Now, it can be exacerbated by sin, of course, and we have to pray about that, but it's not just that. Okay. So that's, that's true of any kind of transformation I'm hoping to make in the ideas of my audience, is that they're not going to change their minds unless I give them a compelling reason to do so, unless they have a compelling reason, actually, to, to do so. So we've got to kind of start thinking of why they would need to change their minds, whether it's about feminism or whether it's about Christianity, whether it's about anything we're trying to talk about. Um, as for, uh, I'm deliberately not talking about postmodernity and postmodernism because those are really big questions, and I think I agree with what you said about them in certain spheres, and I don't in others. And so rather than going into that, um, I would say, let's, if, if you don't mind, I'll just leave that to say the principle holds, whether you're dealing with somebody who thinks in typically modern terms or in postmodern terms. They have to have a reason to want to consider an alternative. And then, then they might. Right? Does, that, does that help? Is that enough?
You know? Now, now you, you did ask a lot, so is there something you would like me to address that I didn't? Yes, okay. Yeah, that was another helpful thread. The difference between the dogma about Jesus and knowing Jesus, right? The things that I think are true about Jesus versus being personally acquainted with Jesus. This is, by the way, I, I'm, I'm going to open up a, a can of worms here, but, you know, I'm going to Canada in a week. It doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> this distinction between knowing uh, Jesus and the things I think are true, the beliefs I have that are about Jesus, is, is really a helpful distinction to make when you're trying to deal with a question like we've had to deal with in North America and you've probably had to deal with here, which is, are, are Muslims praying to their true God? Well, do Muslims have proper beliefs about God? If they're good Muslims, then some of them are wrong. Right? If, they're, if, they're, if their beliefs are in accord with Orthodox Islam, right across the board, Shia, Shiite, uh, and, and Sunni, and all the rest, none, none of them are supposed to believe in a triune God. None, none of them are supposed to believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Right? That's shirk. That's just bad for every good Muslim. So in the nature of the case, their ideas about God are defective, and importantly so from a Christian point of view, right, at that level. Does that mean that they have no actual acquaintance with God? That's a different question. Just like lots of Christians in Sydney pews, I would suggest as a theologian have defective views of God too. And if I gave them a theology test, it might be hilarious or, in fact, heart-rending to see what they would say are true ideas about God that I would say are flatly false and dangerously so. But it doesn't mean that they don't know God. It just means that they have really crappy theology, which is why some of us do what we do for a living, to try to help people think better about God. But that's different than introducing people experientially to God, which, frankly, is the work of the Holy Spirit, not me. Does that make sense, that distinction? Right. So, it's about God. It's about like our and that's, that kind of distinction works otherwise. Yes. Well, and then that, that final point about having conversations and one thing linked to another, when a group feels embattled, you close ranks and you police your borders and you watch out for traitors and you fear any kind of infiltrators, right? It's, it's a natural reaction when you feel embattled, right? All these things happen. I'm just speaking in general, So, yeah, it's not the, I've, I've never experienced this anywhere. I've not known anything about it. But you know, in theory, that's what gr how groups would respond. Um, and, and so any yielding is really problematic because that can be the hole in the dike. That can be the, 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 uh, this, the, the hatch that's not shut. That can be the, the back entrance. And so secondary, tertiary matters now become of supreme importance because everything matters. And when you've got an embattled situation, that's what happens. So people have, have at that point, you, you can't deal with somebody in a calm intellectual way who is freaking out or with a community that is frightened. 
you've got to calm them down enough that you can then talk to them, just as if you have a little kid who's frightened. Unless you can calm him down, you can't get anywhere. So first things first, it's got to be soothing, and then you can open up and maybe to have a conversation. But you certainly aren't as long as they're freaking out. And we've got to just accept that psychological, sociological reality if we hope to make any progress. So that's one of the reasons why when it comes to something like gender, I spend a lot of time saying there, there, there. Right? I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I am serious about all the scriptures you're serious about. I'm not some crazy this, that, something else. I could spend a lot of time trying to say, it's okay, it's okay. And I know I'm sounding sort of comical and condescending right now, but there's a sense in which I really do mean that. Like, I really do mean it's okay. I, I love you. I'm not here to hurt you or frighten you or wreck your life. I'm here to offer you what I think is a gift. Can we talk about that? And I have to find ways of doing that. Because I'm such a sarcastic guy, I have to really work at doing that in a way that sounds genuine and sincere, because sincerity is really hard for me. <laughs> but somewhere under all this, there's some sincere. I really do want to try to help them, and I've got to try to project that. Yeah. Uh, time for one or two more? Don't I, I don't know how, when, you, when you quit, and I don't want to go on too long, but one or two more, and then we'll, then we'll quit, because everybody's busy. And, 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 uh, sorry? Sorry? Yep. Uh, earlier on, you. Uh, alluded to in passing that uh, I, I think in summary you know, we're in it, we've been in or come through a postmodern period where relativity we seem to rule roost but now we've come and tolerance was, was the order of the day but now we're in incredibly intolerant times uh, where people are intolerant of internal points of view I think is a place you pass through. I wonder if you'd give some comments briefly as to how you think we landed there. Mm -hmm. So I'm being asked why, why uh, do I think or how do I think uh, we got to where we are with people being so uh, dogmatic, so convinced about that. And as I say, there's, there's a, a pretty nice long lecture I can give you some time, but I'll give you the, 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 just a little hint of that tonight. And Kahneman's System 1, System 2 can help us a little bit here too. To, to take on the world in its complexity, to really listen to lots of different voices, including challenging ones, including ones that are unpleasant to listen to. to. To be willing to surrender some of my certitudes to challenge even things that might get me to actually change my life, to make me change the way I spend money and the way I, I look after my kids, like, you know, to really, like big ideas, big ideas that matter. To do that requires a tremendous amount of effort, a lot of system two thinking, right? A lot of system two thinking, to really be willing to think through the challenges of our day and be open to significant changes of mind. That's system two. Boy, that's really costly. And as soon as I can, I want to stop doing that because it's wearing me out and it's, it's bugging me. It's making me uncomfortable. And in our 2000 teens, what's been the intellectual history of the last couple of hundred years? Well, let's do it in 60 seconds, shall we? We've basically mown down every, every source of authority that could let me simply stop system two thinking and in a system one way, trust the authority. We've mown down sacred scripture, everybody's. We've mown down sacred institutions, everybody's. We've mown down the scientists. We don't even believe them anymore, right? 
You buy your scientists, I'll buy mine. Right? I'm from Monsanto. Oh, well, I'm from Google. Mm, right? You have your scientists, I have mine. We've mown down the scientists. We've mown down the political leaders. Nobody trusts them anymore. We used to actually trust them. We don't trust journalists anymore. Now it's fake news. Right? And we've, in fact, mown down all the institutions and authorities that could let us, system one, think our way through things. And that's profoundly uncomfortable. And then I've mown down reason, I, even my reason, because of all the things I've suggested. Like, if I want to start thinking through things, I don't have the relevant expertise. I don't have the time, right? I don't, I, I, I might kid myself because I'm a white, middle-aged, male, Canadian, straight Christian, and that's the way I'm programmed to think. And I'm not sure I'm not just thinking what I'm thinking because I'm a white, middle-aged, straight, male, Canadian Christian, whereas if I were any of those things differently, I might think something else. So, so having listened enough to postmodern critique, I'm not sure that I'm, so, so I, what, you know what, though? At least this feels right. This just seems luminously true. And because every other option has been taken away, I think people have opted for intuition. Not because they have good grounds to do so, but because they have nothing left. So that's the quick punchline of a pretty long discussion about where we've come to. I don't think there's anything left. We started with the Internet, all this information, none of which I can trust. That's the world. All this information, none of which I can trust. So what's left to me? What seems right? And it's a really lonely situation for a lot of us now because of that. Yes, let's have one more question so we don't end on that note because that's a real downer. <laughs> and I'm a happy guy, so I want to do that. So we'll do this one and we'll do this one and then we'll finish, okay? Yep. Yes, thank you for that. I've been talking about the role of suffering in making us think otherwise, and I've looked at it from one way that the, the use of deployment assistant to thinking is a form of suffering. It's a form of exertion, a form of discomfort at least, and can be actually quite uncomfortable. But what you said is that suffering can in fact provoke us out of system one thinking. It, it just won't let us alone, and we have to think about things differently. Yeah, thanks. Please. I was just wondering, um, like in the journey that you've gone on in sort of exploring this and in your own faith, what's been the biggest thing that's changed in your life as a result? What's the, of, of this study? So I'm being asked uh, uh, on this journey I've been on to try to answer these kinds of questions, what's been the biggest change for me? Uh, the key for me is, is this subtitle, which has guaranteed really poor sales for the book. <laughs> <laughs> The title's kind of grabby, but the subtitle is supposed to you know, assure people that they need to buy the book. Vocation as the Heart of Christian Epistemology. What in the world? Right? You know, I got to buy that for everybody I know, for sure. Right? So, see, 
This is why I keep teaming up with Oxford, because neither of us can spell marketing, right? right? I mean, Oxford's, Oxford's marketing philosophy is, well, we published it. <laughs> it really, sadly, isn't enough. But I'm thinking like a professor, not like a marketer, because that actually is the key idea, that calling is the heart of Christian epistemology. Because God called me, I can trust him to equip me. Because God called humanity, <clears throat> I can trust God to equip humanity. Because God called the church, I can trust God to equip the church, including epistemically. And that, to me, was the missing piece. I'd gone through all of this epistemological work, reading all these various folks and thinking about the Bible and tradition and reason and experience and intuition and art and all this. And I had these, all these schemes, but at the end of the day, they, they hung in the air. Like, how could, how could I know that any of that was actually relevant to, to, to learning about the world? And I started thinking in terms of God's provision, that these all seem to be relatively reliable to getting at good things in the world. Isn't that interesting? I wonder where that comes from. And ultimately, it comes from God's provision, which I trust. And so that, that's been the, the fundamental move for me, is at the end of the day, I, I trust God, I hope, better, and I'm more happily than I did before. Which, you know, is a pretty nice payoff for 30 years of work, right? Even if the sales are pretty bad. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention. I really appreciate you coming tonight.